there are questions that are being asked and not, as Khadija pointed out, read or cited or articulated to a broader set of audience that are coming out of um, the field and subfields of information technology and data studies and study that Black study needs to engage with. If we're going to take seriously the premise that Trinidadian political scientists and thinker CLR James um, has taught us, where he says that Black studies is the critique of Western civilization. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Between the Black Radical Tradition and the Digital. Thank you to everyone who is here in attendance for our very first event, celebrating the special edition of Logic Magazine, Beacons that I had the honor of co-editing with the support of Alex Blastel, Xiaowei Wang, Ben Tarnoff, Aliyah Blackmore, and Jim Fingal on copy editing, layout design, distribution, and all the labor it takes to produce a small batch magazine in the midst of gestures, everything going on. Um, special shout out to Sean Larson, John McDonald, Amanda on live captions, and the whole Haymarket squad working behind the scenes to make this event. And I mean, honestly, quality content come out day in and day out. So I am an abolitionist whose research focus is predictive analytics in the child welfare system. I'm also the founder of We Be Imagining, a public interest technology project at Columbia University's Insight Center and the American Assembly's Democracy and Trust Program. We Be Imagining draws on the Black radical tradition to develop public interest technology through infusing academic discourse with the performance arts in partnership with community-based organizations. I'm also uh, a co-founder of the Otherwise School, Tools and Techniques of Counterfascism, alongside Sucheta Gosto's Inquilab at the University of Washington, HCDE. And my report on examining the role of tech and mass atrocities in Ethiopia is forthcoming. Um, so I just have a few opening remarks, and then I will introduce these phenomenal speakers. Uh, as someone who spends much of my time researching bureaucracy in the context of algorithms in the child welfare or family regulation system, I'm often ambivalent about declaring my own pr pronouns and beginning with land acknowledgments because of the way in which both of these practices have been institutionalized and formalized within violent carceral institutions what to do with prisons who now open with pronouns and declare their cages are built on stolen lands. I think we should acknowledge the uneasiness of navigating these impasses produced by co-option, a furtherance of the very theft we're trying to name, but also drifting into the complicity of silence altogether also seems like a bad deal. So with that, I'm feeling very they, them these days, um, and I'm calling in from New York, the unceded ground of the Lenape, in preparation for today's event, I returned to the Undersea Network by Nicole Starosielski. Their book has been very helpful to me in tracing how the digital is reliant on physical cables, 
often in remote areas, simultaneously displacing indigenous peoples and relying on local knowledge systems in order to install landed stations where submarine cables come on shore. Uh, the undersea network counters the rhetorical pull of terms such as flow, which too often connote, connote deterritorialization. Network infrastructure is often not only wired, but also centralized, territorial, precarious, and rural. If we think of the internet as only a virtual environment, then our conception of how to change it will depend only on the virtual worlds. Screens are ubiquitous mandates of our everyday lives. We're drowning in signifiers, notifications, or alerts, but there's no marker indicating that the information is traveling through a landed cable on Gun Island in Guam or Fiji or Darwin, Australia. The specificity of indigenous nations involuntarily hosting cable installations that frequently do not even benefit them are nowhere to be found. So I'd like to open this talk with an acknowledgement of how this very mode of relationship that we're entering into now, whether you're tuning in through Zoom or Skype or YouTube, is as premised on the ongoingness of settler colonialism, anti-Blackness and enslavement as the IRL. The spirit of beacons in this event is invitation. Speaking for myself personally, it can be easy to habituate a practice of calling out, of expressing revulsion and disgust at all the filthy violence, absurdity, and messy complicitness. But if the revolution will not be funded, it's not going to be roasted either. I mess with Marxism, the Winterians, the anarcho-black squad, the critical tech peeps, but there's no messianic deliverance around the corner. I actually have no idea, to be honest, what to do. I just know that what we got now ain't it. Being interdisciplinary means I'm perpetually underread in a dozen domains, even though I read every day like a prayer. I just know that the black study has some tools to think about contesting the Malthusian numeracy of tech and the lawyerly liberalism of its discontents. People who have 20 years of technical training have knowledge that needs to be wrested out of the university and industry if we're gonna get free. But these conversations are too often siloed and fragmented if not captured. To the latter, as my colleague and friend Meredith Whitaker demanded in a Beacons interview, why is the instinct always to absorb into the center and never to direct resources out to, be, to the periphery, to the people who have a vantage point that can ask, as Essay has described, a completely different set of questions? We're most comfortable in discussing technology as a tool for expression. And in this political context, that often means something like Zoe has described, white witness of lynchings or viral videos of police murders. But what would it mean to take up Andre's call to begin from black joy, to acknowledge the ongoingness of slavery and the miracle that we are here despite their best efforts? And with that, I would like to introduce our first panelist. Andre Brock is an associate professor in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Dr. Brock is one of the preeminent scholars of Black cyberculture. His work bridges science and technology studies and critical discourse analysis, showing how the communicative affordances of online media align with those Black communication practices. His scholarship includes published articles on racial representation in video games, black women and weblogs, whiteness, blackness, and digital technoculture, as well as groundbreaking research on black Twitter. Most importantly, he is the author of Distributed Blackness, African-American Cyberculture. Welcome, Andre. So you're not going to introduce all of us? We just introduce and then go? I'm going to introduce you as we go along. Are you contesting my moderation? <laughs> go ahead. I mean, have you met me? All right. 
All right. So I'm going to um, just take a few minutes to uh, kind of respond to what Khadija is saying and then to add my own complications to this. So um, I am um, currently in the second phase of my career where I am trying to become uh, a theoretician of what it means to to do and be blackness and the digital space. Um, and I see this uh, as uh, an endeavor with multiple possibilities. The first one, of course, is to talk about blackness as it is, as it was, as it shall be, right? Uh, in a space that affords us the capacity for enactment and presentation, I'm sorry, and performance, right? Uh, without having to um, be uh, apprehended by our physical, right? Uh, that, that is not to say that the semiotic presence of the physical is not always there, uh, particularly for blackness. We are often overdetermined by what people think we're doing. Witness sundown towns in the Midwest where no black people actually really lived. Right. But that is to say that I wanted to talk about blackness in a way that uh, was somehow um, separate from deficit narratives, but also separate from conversations around reparations um resistance and oppression it's a it's a tough road to hoe right um i'll say a little bit more about that uh right here i'm going to read from a slide pardon me um blackness in online spaces and elsewhere is immediately captured by western aesthetic culture or apprehended by political culture which offers possibilities for theorizing resistance to those oppressive paradigms i feel as if black folk are capable of more than resistance however Instead of arguing for emancipation through appropriate digital practice or decolonial movements to remove the oppressive structures of modernity, my pressing concern when I argue for and discuss Black technoculture is to express the vitality and joy of Black uses of information and communication technologies. I theorize this as jouissance from libidinal economy or joy, because uh, I can't keep saying that word. Uh, and I say that this jouissance pre-exists our involuntary arrival in Western modernity. We were black before we were enslaved. And yes, that's intentionally provocative. I'm waiting for y'all to jump on me for that. Accordingly, while this black jouissance may become commodified or surveilled, it is paraontological, right? And that the embodied cognition that we express also pre-exist the platforms upon which our uh, efforts are published, visible, deemed appropriate for consumption, and even captured. So the question for me, as I've been working through the second phase of my career, is how best to argue for and understand Jewish as a Black capacity or affordance of technical and technological artifacts. Uh, I'm not gonna keep running my mouth, I will add this this piece. So I uh, attempted. Can we curse on this podcast? I mean, on this stream. Oh, well, we're gonna do it anyway. I started shit on this uh, uh, before we even got in this thing by posting a question yesterday, and I wanted to ask. And Khadija and I have been batting this back and forth. What is the black radical tradition? How is blackness not always already radical? And it's very conditions of possibility in this Western white Western technocultural uh, white supremacist matrix, right? And is there something special or specific about the digital that would afford us greater capacities for freedom, or in my case, joy? Or is this radical and intellectual pursuit, right, that focuses on the activities of certain elites, 
as opposed to the activities of the mundane with which I'm most concerned with, where I see Kashawn Thompson's Black Girl Magic as a radical moment and uh, everyday life, right? Trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents to me represents a radical possibility in a world that is not, uh, that is intent upon denying us the next day. So I'll stop there. That's a lot to talk about. And I'll turn it back over to Khadija. Thank you so much. You know, I think I'm the president of the Distributed Blackness Stand Club because you got all them $5 words and then them $10 questions. So I really, I really appreciate that. And so next, I would like to introduce S.A. Smythe. They are a poet, translator, and assistant professor of the Black European Cultural Studies, Contemporary Mediterranean Studies, and Black Trans Poetics at UCLA, where they research relational aspects of Black belonging beyond borders. They are a senior fellow at the Center for Applied Transgender Gender Studies, and editor of Troubling the Grounds, Global Configurations of Blackness, Nativism, and, and Indigeneity, a special issue for postmodern culture. Winner of the 2022 Rome Prize for Modern Italian Studies, Smythe is currently based between Rome and Tongva Island. Welcome, Essay. Thank you so much, um, Khadija, and the people behind the scenes acting a fool. Um, I'm going to be real quick. Um, just to say, Doc Brock, I know we're going to circle right on back to the Black radical tradition and questions, but let me just start here and say that that is a really useful and necessary question. Um, and I think um, by way of introduction, my introduction, which I'll talk about in a second, to the question of the digital and Black life and its possibilities, um, Black, black lives and possibility, Black thought, etc. Um, it's one of those things that I think we would do well to remember in its plurality, even if we articulate it in the singular, which is to say, as Doc Brock pointed out, um, there are other iterations of um, things that can be read as a Black radical tradition. But on the other hand, I don't um, want us to get too far away from the ghost, which is to cite, as I I need to stop doing, but um, it's already great. Um, my favorite podcast, The Read, where Chris says words mean things that I mean has never gone like a day where I'm not citing that um, but words do mean things and so I want us to maybe think about the the digital and other ontological room between black and radical between radical and tradition and how those things interact with one another um, that is also by way of saying that um, what's that thing that we learned from black Americans not all skin folk is kin folk and we would be remiss to take as um, ontologically and epistemologically bound the understanding that blackness, black and black people are one and the same um, because that's the kind of okie doke that we have black folks out here um, copyrighting t-shirts made in sweatshops that say Aunt Angela and Tony and Audrey, et cetera, et cetera, while they let us lie dead in the streets. Um, so that was not actually what I <laughs> intended to say, um, but I will still be brief and just sort of give a little bit of an introduction to, um, I guess, why I'm here, which is to say, the calling in part um, of uh, Khadija's wonderfully edited and curated volume um, that took a lot of the kind of care work and patience and deep thought that I'm excited to talk about today and to talk about it as one of the offerings that Black study has offered me um, and Black life also makes possible when you take it seriously, which is to say, I don't know nothing about no technology. I don't know nothing about technique and technique. The setup for this call had me logging out by accident of the, the platform that we're using four different times. 
However, there are questions that are being asked and not, as Khadija pointed out, read or cited or articulated to a broader set of audience that are coming out of um, the field and subfields of information technology and data studies and study that black study needs to engage with. If we're going to take seriously the premise that Trinidadian political scientist and thinker CLR James um, has taught us, in, um, it's in a 1970 or 1971 issue of The Black Scholar, where he says that black studies is the critique of Western civilization. Um, and so also by way of thinking about what black does and does not do, how anti-blackness undergirds modernity and what, what it is that we mean by modern and who it is we mean when we say we. When we think about Western civilization and the way that it permeates, we have to reckon with the fact that it is squarely also in the realm of the digital. And so we in Black Studies need to sort of take up the mantle and take up the call to be invited into these conversations. Um, but we also need to read. Um, and so I actually do want to talk a lot about reading and also not have it be, you know, what does Black Studies teach or have to say about the digital um, so that, you know, those of us who are being brought into the conversation jump on top of the boat and try to steer it, we're going to steer it into the rocks. So this is really um, sort of a way to like ground, but also reflect on my own position in terms of thinking about what can I learn about um, the study of information, the collecting of digital landscapes, the fugitive spaces where um, Black people have been making meaning and disseminating ourselves into digital space. Um, and how it is that we can sort of make room for one another without sort of crowding a semantic field that doesn't actually let us be possible. And this also speaks to the institutionalization of black studies and maybe is a bit of a clarion call. I'm not doing a call out since Khadija has talked to us about this um, and it's really foregrounding the entire introduction of that um, uh, Logic 15 beacons issue, but actually um, a warning if you keep with me on that um, boat metaphor to say we actually don't need to keep up and steer um, and follow the pace of um, rampant um, information, misinformation, and disinformation, as Andreas talks about, but actually slow down the scale to deepen our disruption and deepen our engagement with one another and the knowledge that we already have to share. Um, and so... I hope that was um, clear. I know there's a lot there too, and maybe next time I'll speak a bit slower. <laughs> Thanks. No, thank you. I really appreciate that, especially, you know, I think this invitation is happening in the context of, again, gestures at everything, you know, the plague, uh, what it means to kind of just reproduce our life day in and day out in the midst of these violent institutions. And so I can imagine, um, especially for those of us who might be a lot of white people's only black friend, you know, like con receiving constant texts and emails asking about how we're doing, um, given that the last person was executed, right? And so in the midst of all of those notifications, you responded to my invitation. So I just want to like acknowledge that and 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 say that I appreciate that. And next we have um, a very special panelist. And the reason why I say special is not because just because their scholarship is dope, um, but because Zoe Samozi actually did not um, participate in this particular issue, edition of Logic. And I, our relationship was initiated when they uh, guest edited a special copy of the Phenambulist and invited 
invited myself and my colleague Ayantu Tebeso to participate. And that began a conversation that I'm excited to bridge with what we've just we're just we're just beginning, frankly, um, with this Logic Beacons edition. And so Zoe has a PhD in sociology from the University of California, California, San Francisco, where she is a postdoctoral fellow in the Actions Program. She is co-author of As Black as Resistance, guest editor of the September to October 2021 edition of The Phenambulist, titled Against Genocide, and a writer whose work has appeared in The New Republic, The New Inquiry, Hyperallergic Jewish Currents, and other outlets. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much um, for the invitation. And again, thank you to everyone who is helping the, all of this technology run afloat. I could not be more tech illiterate. Um, my remarks are significantly shorter um, than the good doctors, Brock and Smythe. Um, but I wanted to kind of bring in one piece that has been really uh, foundational to how I think about uh, digital economies uh, and technologies, both in kind of a response to what Andre said about blackness as this overdetermination, and also what Essay said about, you know, the non synonymity of black, blackness, and black people. Um, Christina Sharp, in all of her prophetic power, really, um, I think, prophesized a lot of what we see on Twitter, particularly with the 1999 paper called Racialized Fantasies on the Internet. And there's a line at the very beginning um, of the paper where she talks about how she is most curious um, about and interested in, quote, unspoken and often unknown fantasies or desires that complicate and structure our lives the fantasies that redouble with every denial and every repetition. And it just made me really think about how, you know, in, you know, the way that uh, Khadija and I initially connected around thinking about, or rather teaching me about um, Tigre and all of these different humanitarian technologies that are used to count and to document, um, to, to create databases for biometrics. Um, the ways that technology and digital economies as kind of um, a medium as well as a non um, an immaterial space are simultaneously for self and collective actualization as well as different kinds of denials and disavowals. And so um, I want to get into our conversation and I'll just stop there. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. I'm really like, honestly, like I, this is like a group of stands. So I'm like, just personally so excited to hear everything that y'all got to say. And also I think this conversation is hard because we're not operating within an already existing and defined framework, but trying to find our bearings. And in that spirit, I'll just be honest. Many of my questions are also like conversations in themselves. Um, and just some reflections on reading your work and thinking about ways that each of you might want to enter in. Um, so beginning with Andre and distributed blackness, you're thinking about African-American cyber cultures or how Ruha has described as a Morrisonian approach to information technology. Um, you discuss in the interview on Logic, if you think about playing in the dark, where Morrison spends a lot of time in the first couple of chapters talking about African-Americanism or a white identity premised on a negative inverse relationship with blackness, you're making that same conversation, not about literature, but about technology. 
Um, and so, Andre, I was wondering if you could elaborate more on this Morrisonian approach to technology. And I was thinking about that in relationship to essay. You edited a 2021 edition of the journal Postmodern Culture, Troubling the Grounds of Blackness, Nativism, and Indigeneity, in which Zoe was also a contributor. And you opened your editorial by saying, as Black feminist uh, Barbara Smith notes in Marlon Riggs' iconic film, Black Is, Black Ain't, there are as many kinds of Black people as there are Black people to be. So this conversation about blackness and technology is often reduced to either representation in big tech or reinscribing the nation state in order to protect black people, which are, again, assumed to be a site of uh, deficit, the digital divide discourse. Yet in each of your approaches, there seems to be an otherwise rooted in a specificity to a place landed or not belonging in attachments to and within the diaspora, a notion of what's possible that isn't delimited to legalistic modes of understanding uh, info studies or the internet. So um, scrolling back, Andre, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the Morrisonian approach to technology that you were getting at in the interview or DB, and then Essay and Zoe um, to either aspect of the second part of the question. Not you with the seven part question. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Ruha is going to be like, I wish I had never said that shit because now he just keeps saying it everywhere. Um, <laughs> what I took from playing in the dark is that uh, I know in logic, we were talking about disinformation and misinformation studies. Right. And so from playing in the dark and Marx's uh, concept of American Africanism, disinformation is really only understood as a problem when it's not applied to the other. Right. Uh, the decade, the centuries of misinformation and disinformation published in official documents and newspapers and anecdotal accounts about indigenous savagery uh, in the American West, which from Massachusetts all the way out to California. Right. Or the continued uh, uh, people have been really good at pointing out how um, narratives about blackness change post uh um, civil war where all of a sudden the happy slaves became lazy, shiftless Negroes. And that really kind of dominated the press as people were trying to understand this new relationship that they had to adopt regarding these newly free people. Nevertheless, uh, even though that is disinformation from our perspectives, right? White folk never saw that as disinformation and misinformation, right? Because of their relationship with uh, the other, the other, in particular, blackness, indigenous folk, right, as the nadir of humanity. I love um, uh, reading through Moton. Uh, I usually have to be really kind of um, lifted in order to understand him, right? But one of the things he says is that, uh, I believe it's him, right, is that uh, the Black is not capable of alienation, for they must be considered human in order to be alienated from modernity and society, right? And that kind of, that part really kind of sticks with me, right? Because, you know, Khadija, you and I have these conversations about Afro-pessimists all the time, right? And I'm going to start shit because I'm sure they're not listening, um, but, <laughs> but the, an Afro-pessimistic position kind of naturally proceeds from, um, I, well, not naturally, because I don't know if they necessarily cite feminist thinkers as, as much as I would want them to, but I think it kind of proceeds from Morrison's understanding of what American Africanism is, that there is no position for the Black and, and modern society, right? And I am trying to craft something different, pulling on Moton's arguments for Afro-optimism, right? Where I understand, I, I believe in that word para-ontological comes up again and again and again, right? As much as I love Sharp, 
right? The middle passage epistemology brings me some sort of agitus, right? Because I'm like, and this is, Moten says this as well, we were black before the ships brought us here, right? And Khadija and I argue about this on a regular basis, right? Because she wants to talk about the Oromo and other uh, African societies, political groups, kinship groups and the like that may not consider themselves black, right? But in this, and I understand that and appreciate that, right? But as uh, as I said, when in her lovely remarks, uh, before we started the I'm sorry, their lovely remarks, my bad, fam, um, uh, that if you are uh, of hue, as my friend would say, and go to Africa, <laughs> or if you're of hue in Europe, in both cases, you're black, right? Um, uh, or as someone said, I bet Trevor Noah wasn't asked what country he was from when he was stopped by the police, right? And so this concept of blackness uh, that I'm attempting to work with acknowledges Afro-pessimism. It also acknowledges the sheer inevitability of modernist use, modernist and capitalist extraction of blackness for profit. Right. But at the same time, I'm trying to carve, as Essay said, right, a third path, another possibility for blackness in which we can understand the heterogeneity of blackness, both being the conservative <coughs> traders um, like the Thomases and the McWhorters. Right. Or we can also understand the Boosie badasses and Trinas. Right. Or we can understand the respectability proponents. Or we can understand, you know, uh, the folk who are hanging out in the corner doing the things that they do in order to make a dollar out of 15 cents. You know, they're usually trying to make that money any way they can. Right. And I see I want to create space for all of those people that may be captured by modernity and capitalism, but still find something enjoyable about being black that leads them to claim it on an everyday basis. And does Clarence Thomas enjoy being black? If you ask his clerks, he does, right? His opinions and, and politics seem to be anti-black, but he's fostered this really extensive network of black judicial, black judges, right? That to me says something slightly different about who and what he is could be as a person, right? Even though he's married to it, I mean, Jenny, right? Uh, and I'm rambling, sorry, shut me off at some point, right? I just want to say, I, so let's just start with an expansive conceptualization of blackness, right? Um, let's acknowledge that whiteness and modernity has a space, uh, has created this space in which blackness exists in context, but it should not necessarily be the only way that blackness can be understood, neither resistance, oppression, or capitalism. And I'll stop there. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, 
to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. I told you I was going to be incendiary. So you're going to have Afro-pessimists and Clarence Thomas stands in my mentions, right? I Does think that's Clarence what we're Thomas doing today. <laughs> Clearly, you've never been to a Jack and Jill meeting. Um, so maybe S.A. or Zoe, would you like to um, respond to, to any of that? Or maybe to my question, we can redirect it. <laughs> Would you like to respond, I say? Oh, wow. No, um, this is, um, I'm short. yes, yeah. I first, though, would love to say um, that you've heard it here first. Um, my name is um, changed, actually, to Fred Moten. So if you want to get in touch, you just hit at Fred Moten on Twitter. Um, essay's gone, essay's done. Um, anybody want to follow up with me after this? At Fred Moten. Um, wow, fam. Yeah, I, I, I hear how it's going to be. Um, I didn't need any caffeine today because now I'm ready. Um, you said a lot of wild things. Um, a lot of them... <clears throat> There's a lot to sift through, and I know we're hopefully you know, gonna go over and like sift. I want to um, tease apart though the, the the black part because shit's nuanced, right? And we, what we don't want to do is then like do the same kind of um, epistemic kind of collapse that white folks have us out here doing to like scramble for things just because we don't want to let Clarence sit at the cookout because he don't want to eat at the cookout because he doesn't believe in herbs and spices. Doesn't mean though that we then render everyone of hue um, as as you were. Your, your friend put it, um, uh, get into the conversation um, that we're trying to have about blackness, which is also actually why I found the black radical tradition, um, the, the one that um, I learned about through Cedric Robinson's work in 1983's Black Marxism that um, Robin Kelly helped popularize um, with an introduction and a new edition in 2000, and then again in 2020, 20-year 20 edition of that, um, thinking actually about the structures that um, are organized that name themselves race. Um, as I think it was said earlier, um, I'm in Rome, I'm in Italy right now, I'm in Europe, I'm in a lot of ways the belly of the beast, but I also live um, on Turtle Island, which is just the beast's different belly, right? Um, and so no one should be getting off the hook in this. However, um, every day, <clears throat> Well, not recently, because it's still the Rona out here, right, everybody? So I don't spend a lot of time interacting with people that I don't know or I'm in pods with in a physical sense. Another way that the digital is really useful to like keep um, these conversations going. Um, there are people that I encounter that are um, dark complected, that are ethnic white Italians who love to tell me they're from the South, right? They're from Naples. And they're like, before all this, gesturing widely at the several decades of immigration uh, in Southern Europe in particular and Europe more broadly, before all this, um, we were the black Italians, but now there are, you know, like you. And so I just wanna be very clear that Hugh means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And this is also why we need to have some geospecificity and we need to read. Those Italians need to read and to think about themselves um, as oppressed, which I wonder if that's something that, you know, to be generous and they don't really deserve it. Um, 
to think about the oppression that they've had to endure, the internal colonization to make Italy a unified nation state um, of the you know kingdom of Sicily and kingdom of Naples and sort of unify that under a white supremacist project doesn't then make them black people. It doesn't even make them the black people of Italy. Right. It makes them ethnicized people who have endured oppression. Right. This is why um, if there's anyone who is familiar with the UK or British context, which has like obviously just a too long a history of imperialism for us to really get into. But if you're in London and you see people hurling literally racial slurs at Polish people with the blondest hair, hair and Toni Morrison's bluest eye, you'd be like, well, hang on. They're literally the definition of white people, I thought. And then we actually have to think about the geospecificity of the conversation that we're trying to have, how the word for black actually, what it does and circulates in Russia or in the former Soviet Union in terms of the Caucasus and those relationalities. We don't want to just sort of throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater and then allow um, the words that mean things, even if that was forged in what Toni Morrison also talks about, a kind of white imaginary that requires a black body. And here I'm on purpose using black body, which is a term I loathe when we're talking about black people, but literally a devoid, epistemologically evacuated black thing is required for modernity to exist. We don't have to actually then let it exist as the monolith that white supremacy affords it. And so I know that there was also other parts, Khadija, to your question, um, but I think it's useful to leave it there because I think that also does answer your part of the question in terms of the introduction to um, the Troubling the Grounds um, volume that I edited in terms of how many kinds of Black to be are there. I think a difficult question that the Black community, <laughs> I hope you know that's a joke, and needs to ask is what all do we mean by Black? because I think there is a lot of taking it for granted um, so that we can try to throw out the Clarence Thomases or the Barack Hussein Obamas when they do things that are in service of white supremacy. But actually at this point, they're still black in a structural sort of sense, um, in a genealogical sort of sense. Is that not a difficult conversation that we need to have in terms of what is it that we mean when we're actually in the pursuit of black joy, in pursuit of black liberation, who all is coming with us on the other side of the horizon? No, thank you for that. I mean, that actually like dovetails nicely. Oh yes, freeze, freeze, freeze. Uh, but that also dovetails nicely because I definitely had like red alert where Andre had me on the record talking about Aromos uh, don't conceive of themselves as black, um, which is definitely not true. I think the that is not is, what I said. Uh, well, I'll just clarify that our almost definitely do conceive of themselves as black. Um, but like part of the intervention that I think Ayantu and I were trying to make when we were uh, publishing the essay in the Funambulist under Zoe is that can we understand black and indigeneity as not mutually exclusive categories? What is this connection to land that it is ongoing? And like, what does indigenous land claims have to do with black liberation, particularly when that conversation is taking is taking place? in an American context in which those those two categories are assumed to be mutually exclusive. And I just was, a, a, I just wanted to say, like, I don't think we should put Lil Boosie and Trina on the same axis. You know, I definitely celebrate ratchetry, right? But I think it's important, you know, you could be ratchet without being transphobic. You could be ratchet without forcing your child into non-coercive uh, relationships. Um, and so, you know, and I think, I, and, and I think this question of like, how do people conceptualize their blackness and how does blackness gets written in the conversation often is like 
also colliding with notions around respectability politics, right? I'm thinking about this as a first gen in the diaspora when a lot of people are compelled to be, you know, strivers and upwardly mobile, upwardly mobile, good immigrant, quote unquote, good immigrants, not like those other blacks, right? Um, and there definitely is anti-blackness, the diaspora wars, um, but I think it's often the most like toxic elements from like globally. And some of these, you know, quote unquote, Africans that are being anti-black are those that oppressed us also. And, you know, who definitely did not think of themselves as black was Haile Selassie, right? No matter what the Rastafarians, uh, how they reify him as like almost a godlike figure, right? Um, but with that, I just, you know, I'm curious, Zoe, what you're thinking, um, if there's if there's anything here you want to respond to. Y'all got me stressed. Okay. Let me get my notes. <laughs> no, I, I I was just really thinking about you know middle classes, uh, middle passage epistemology, and the ways that it can often foreclose the vastness and kind of multiplicity of blackness, especially in continental Africa. And I'm really, I was really grateful to find Michelle Wright's book, The Physics of Blackness, and she talks about blackness not just as a what, but as a when and a where. And so thinking about you know, these trajectories of racecraft at that as, you know, as I really importantly pointed out, um, are geospecific. And so, um, I mean, my, I'm, you know, Zimbabwean, my work is about Namibia and I'm, and I'm thinking often about, you know, blackness in the post-colonial independent African states, but specifically in former settler colonial Southern Africa, um, in Zimbabwe, Namibia, South Africa, um, and 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 the kind of geospecificities of blackness, black people, and indigeneity in those spaces, um, because those those colonials, those settler colonies, I think, performed a racecraft that is much more legible to us in the United States via apartheid. And I think that what we often do, um, we do this. We don't do this with blackness, but we do this with whiteness. Is there's like a flattening of the kind of flavors of whiteness without recognizing the fact that it is these specific flavors of whiteness that also produce different kinds of blackness. So as Essay was describing these Southern Italians who are conceiving themselves as being the black people of Italy, it is this specific understanding of non-whiteness that then informs this relationship to black migrants in Italy and the kind of xenophobias that arise from that, and I think what is really interesting about what happened in settler colonial Southern Africa is um, the figure specifically. I mean, among other people, Jan Smuts, and Jan Smuts, you know, in his in his um, observation of the kind of fratricidal warfare that was happening in Europe, is you know unequivocal about the fact that whiteness needs to coalesce in its opposition to blackness. And I think that it's you know really critical that this is the man who writes uh, the United Nations Charter. And the kind of and 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 manage to it manages to invisibilize um, the colonial framework that goes into the the body that is supposed to afford a universality um, of rights um, and and humanity. And what I think is really important in thinking about the 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 postcolonial African state is this idea and this fetishization of black leadership, right? And and I think that this is the 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 unshakable legacy of 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 Barack Obama. Um, not to say that this didn't precede him, but I think that that has really kind of concretized um, maybe a, a concrete ceiling for Black people in terms of what 
the things, the, the kind of things to which we should be aspiring um, and when, and what kind of denotes to success. Because what you see on the continent, and this is what I'm, I'm trying to kind of think about in thinking about Black indigeneity on the African continent and not just as something that is kind of alluded to as a kind of um, uh, a far past um, indigeneity uh, in reference to the transatlantic slave trade is this idea of, you know, kind of everyone being native during colonization. And then you have some native people who are um, helming the state and that are actively continuing the dispossession of other native people. And then I guess when we're bringing in indigenous, indigenous is described as the relationship to the nation state. You have these native people who are actively dispossessing um, minoritized, whatever, or, or however they, they are put in the position of lesser recognition, non-recognition or dispossession, um, other peoples. And I think that when we talk about um, blackness and, and indigeneity and we conceive of the nation state, of the African nation state as um, a vehicle of indigenous governance, I think that that's where we really start to lose the plot because I do not believe that the nation state is a vehicle of indigenous governance. And there has to be kind of a further disaggregation. And, and obviously I'm not claiming to have any answers about indigeneity on the continent. I can only kind of speak to what I'm beginning to understand about Southern Africa. But I think that we really lose the plot when we are beginning to um, deny or justify or whatever um, uh, discourses around unity, around you know this 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 perverted black unity, as it not only enables but necessitates um, the dispossession of particular groups of people. And I know that we're itching to bring back um, the digital, so I will yield to the to our to our good facilitator. <laughs> Uh, no, thank you, everybody, for these comments. Like, I really appreciate the the capaciousness of of the way that you each take up these questions. Um, I've been thinking a lot. I complain a lot. <laughs> this is why I'm working on Call It In. I complain a lot about tech journalism. Um, and Ben Tarnoff, who's one of the co-founders of Logic, shout out. Um, he made this point to me that a lot of tech journalism started off as product review, and you can you can see that. Right. And that, you know, the, there is a shift away a little bit um, from evangelizing tech products, um, sometimes to evangelize, evangelizing the people who are critiquing tech products. Um, but a lot of times the digital is still away from the kind of conversations that we're having here now, even as they're central. You know, I think about IBM and the Holocaust in terms of the centrality of technology, the transnational railroad, if we're thinking about non-digital technologies. Um, and I know SA in our interview, we had a whole conversation about humanitarian um, satellite imagery. Uh, but I was thinking, Andre, maybe what do you want to say? There's like a specificity to information science and the particular types of interventions that you were trying to make in distributed blackness and across your work. And so thinking about the people who are coming from a black study uh, perspective in the audience, like what do you want to say about why they need to engage with your work, with Simone Brown's work, with Sophia Noble's work, um, with the people who are not just epidermically black or phenotypically black, um, uh, but have really been looking, you know, at the this intersection or this this entanglement between technology, race, the nation state, and black liberation. <laughs> Openly black. That's the one I'm gonna use. Uh, so let me backtrack and I'll circle back to the question you actually asked me. 
Um, so, uh, first of all, buy my book. Don't buy uh, Ruha and Sophia and Simone got sales already. I need I need some royalties. Uh, <laughs> okay, so. Uh, the thing I talk about a lot now is libidinal economy, right? It's how libidinal economy, I got to it through Afro-pessimism and anti-Blackness, but I stick with it because libidinal economy helps me to articulate how belief is a constituent part of technology design, use, and dissemination, right? Um, and so for me, it's as interesting to talk about what the libidinal economy of white supremacy is or of American identity as it is. It's important to say that as well as it's important to say what the libidinal economy of the digital is or of technoculture, right? So when we start talking about the digital, we don't necessarily start thinking about the specifications of your latest iPhone or whether or not you have a Chromebook or a MacBook or what type of monitor you're using. What we actually begin to discuss, the meanings that we make are about how we understand ourselves as we use these technologies, right? And blackness has often been excluded from those technologies because we were technical objects, right? Not subjects, right? And I'll come back to that, right? Um, so for me, a libidinal economy of technoculture, of the digital, right, is overpowered by Silicon Valley narratives and Wall Street narratives of profit, productivity, and efficiency of the newer narratives of data as oil. So the extraction of personally identification, identifiable information to sell to advertisers, to configure us, to apprehend us uh, for the profit of the market and also to the detriment of black and brown bodies and more recently white ones, right? We could talk about next door, right? Um, but when I was invited to this conversation, I wanted to push past that to asking how would black studies see the digital right is it a radical space right and if so what is it doing to subvert those capitalistic modernistic beliefs about what the internet can do right and some of that is uh there are beliefs that the internet is democratic we know it's not right there are beliefs that the internet is populist right uh, and the bad meaning of populist, not the good meaning of populist. So, uh, essay when you said the black community, I've been arguing against a black community on Twitter for 20, 10 years now, right? Because people say, oh, well, what is black Twitter? I say black Twitter is a collective because it's multiple groups of black Twitter users, which actually really neatly maps on to what any black neighborhood is going to be, right? And so, Calling it a community goes back to your geospatial arguments for what blackness is. Is it simply defined by redlining the highways that destroyed our neighborhoods, the Superfund uh, EPA sites that bound our, our communities, or is it a semiotic, ideological, libidinal space, right? I tend to move towards the last, right? In part because I am a rhetorician, uh, the internet allows me to look at archived discourses, but also um, extemporaneous ephemeral discourses to see how black people articulate themselves in the moment and in posterity, right? Uh, and so the radical for me, and this ain't answering your question, maybe I'll never get back to it, right? So the radical part about Black studies and the digital should be more than simply whether or not we can overcome the uh, oppression levied on us by surveillance regimes, 
right, by commodification regimes. So I'm thinking of Jalea Harmon and the Renegade Dance and how the poor baby only recently got compensated for the millions of views that she gave to Charlie D'Amelio and Addison Ray, right? That you like my TikTok dancing, waist up only. Um, <laughs> right. There's something that we bring to it. And this is where libidinal economy works really well for me an excess of life. Right. A flavor, if you will. Right. Uh, and that flavor is something that the West has always sought to strip from us for its own profit. But that doesn't mean that we should not do it because it will be stolen from us. Right. It also doesn't mean we shouldn't do it because we can't make money off of it. And it also means, and this is the radical part for me, that what we do is effort, not work. What we do is effort, not resistance, right? So when you're eating bacon, and I always come back to Cat Williams, right? That eminent philosopher, Micah Cat Williams, right? Uh, when you're eating bacon, are you thinking about the resistance of your teeth against this slice of pork and the resistance of your esophagus as it pulls down through peristaltic motion to your stomach and the resistance of the stomach acids as they break it down? No, you're like, bacon is delicious, right? I want a radical reconception of what blackness can be on the internet as deliciousness, as joy, right? And I'm not saying that's all it has to be, right? In, in both my original Twitter article and a distributed blackness, I argue that that possibility for joy is what led to the capacity for political resistance that Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd protests, the Breonna Taylor protests uh, uh, were able to take advantage of, right? Because I remember earlier forms of, of internet participation, the blogs, right? Which because of their actual context, I mean, the, before because of their container, right? a reverse chronological feed of somebody writing a diary and maybe they'll listen to their audience, right? That was not necessarily the best vehicle for doing uh, social protest. Right? If you think about the Jenna Six, right? But what the social media brought us is the capacity for many more folk, many mundane folk, many, uh, I, I like how you tried to say Boosie can't be on because he homophobic, right? As if homophobia, and transphobia is not a part of what blackness is. Like you don't get to separate which parts of blackness you want and which parts of blackness you don't want, right? Uh, and so it allowed a much wider strain of black folk to participate in these conversations in real time in a way that hashtags and trending topics captured that made us visible to white folk, which is only kind of important, but more importantly, helped solidify a collective vision of who we could be in that moment, much like versus between Gladys and Patty, right? Um, it made us understand in an informational space how radical it was that we could all come together and share ourselves, right? Uh, in a way that brought us life, that recuperated us, right? That can be political, but doesn't have to be. So let me stop there because I've introduced a couple of different concepts and I didn't answer your question, but I think I put out enough to where we can keep going with this. Nah, thank you. There's a lot to respond there. And I guess for, for Zoe and Essay, I wanted to ask you the question a little bit in reverse about why hasn't Black study for them, you know, and I, do, I don't want to erase, you know, again, those like Simone Brown, Moya Bailey, Safia Noble, um, and others who have been thinking through uh, Black study or the or intersection of race and technology, Ruha Benjamin. Uh, but overwhelmingly, like as a 
as a discipline um, or as black freedom dreaming in the sense that Robin D.G. Kelly describes, why has black study not taken up technology with a capital T? Um, and I think it's not just a question of tech, but also the sciences. I'm really resistant to the acronym of STEM, um, but shout out to Chandra, Prescott Weinstein. I know that they have been talking about physics and what does black study have to say particularly about astrophysics. Um, but, you know, there feels like there's some there there in terms of how is black study delimited. And I know, Zoe, you and I have kind of DM back and forth. Is it a question of applied black study? Um but yeah, either of you want to answer? You know, I, I almost don't feel like I can fully answer this question because I'm not in black studies. Um, I kind of do black studies, but Me I'm neither. sociology. <laughs> but it's like, I, I mean, I think about. Uh, I would almost say maybe there's like there can sometimes be an overemphasis on a particular kind of materiality. And I think that there's a tendency to not think about technology as material in the way that you described it as something that, yes, it exists in this cloud, but it is necessarily cables on land and sea. It is necessarily like when we're looking at um, those server farm things, which for NF so crypto, I don't know how any of that works. But it's like, I think if we're going to start talking about and actually taking seriously, I mean, I don't take it seriously, but I think it has to be contended with and taken seriously, um, like cryptocurrency and NFT. It's like we have to think about the ways that those are massively um, destructive, both in the ways that they're transforming or they're, they're doing things about value and doing things about capital. I will, in fact, be bringing up that meta slaves thing when they were selling black people pictures of black people um because that was weird as hell and i did not need to wake up and see that on twitter and that is exactly why i have deleted twitter off my phone but that is another <laughs> that is another conversation no i think like one person who i've learned a lot about and i think that black study could stand to talk about this subject a lot more as i've learned a lot from um zalika ibarimi and her writing about sex work and I think that through this other libidinal economy, I think that it is really valuable and really important to, it would be really important for Black studies to really, really take a lot more seriously um, sex workers and the, um, the, 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 the digital economy as like a sexual economy and the ways that the state in its attempts to like regulate the internet um, in the name of like saving people from human trafficking are doing very particular violences in both the digital and the material around this like legislation that they're passing that are preventing sex workers from being able to work on the internet. Um, that that's, that's all I've got. <laughs> um, I'll chime in a bit, although my brain's feeling real foggy, so maybe I won't be able to tease on to every, hold on to everything. But I wanted to go back just super quick to 
Um, Great point, you know, in terms of the black community, and I really dig the, you know, as collective instead, which is also why I put community in those inverted commas, right, in quotes, Um, because, again, words do mean things. And if we are also about the business of relishing black life and trying to collectively figure out who all we mean by we, we cannot actually name it as a community just outright, because community is something that um, you opt into. Right. And so this is actually maybe even on the Clarence Thomas, Barack Hussein Obama, make sure to say it's full government on that tip. Right. Are they trying to be in community with black people? That doesn't make them not black. It just means they're not in community. They're not the black community. Right. Um, I also, though, wanted to. Oh my gosh, and see, this is where I'm like losing losing things and got 17 pens here and didn't take a single note. But um, when we are also talking about um, this conversation, you know, when Zoe is talking to us about the materiality, I want to say two things to Khadija's point. Um, that we're just really just to reiterate like a close reading, let's say, of the question, right? Because Khadija talked to us about like what's with black studies and freedom dreaming and then cited Robin Dugout Kelly. That's what the DG stands for. Um, and, you know, that's one dude. Right. Robin is one man. <laughs> he works at my workplace at UCLA. Right. Uh He's not the field, right? And I know we know this, but I want to use this to underscore the point, which almost in a way is why I'm grateful for this conversation that we're having today, because I'm also rethinking what I, you know, wrote through and talked through with Khadija in the the Logic um, Beacons conversation, because when we're talking about, and this is also what Robin does, right, talking about Black studies and making an, a, a material difference between Black studies and Black study, that's something that we also need to do when we're thinking about this sort of um, call in and this technological conversation. I want to be very clear of something that I think we all know, right? Just a year or two ago, um, or 10, I mean, time in, in the panorama, right? But we just recently came on the 50th anniversary of an institutionalized Black studies in the United States specifically in California. That's just 50 years. That's not Black life. That's not Black history. That is not even Black studies, right? Because that is, it, we're talking about one nation, which has a, you know, it's an empire. It's a settler colony. Um, it has a material impact on the entire globe, but it also is one place. In that time, they were also having conversations about the TWLF, the Third World Liberation Front, and thinking about ethnic studies more broadly and more collectively and expansively, you know, thinking with internationalism and specifically the Black international that I this moment we'd be remiss not to be bringing back in full force, but it still is in its place and in its time, right? I'm in a place where there is not one, count it, one O-N-E, one any no Black Studies programs in Europe. There's one undergraduate program in the United Kingdom. We can talk about that definitely offline, but it's not institutionalized in the same way at all. And so when we're saying what does black studies, um, basically, you know, what's this deal? How do we call it in? We also have to acknowledge these um, very salient political, geopolitical, geographical points, right? We need to acknowledge that, um, you know, if we're going to have a community conversation, which is, you know, part of the limits of community in that sort of material sense, we're also need to, needing to think about the collective capacity for translation, right? Speaking across and to one another. 
Most black people don't speak English. Most black people speak more languages than any other people. Most people of African descent, let's also say, right? And so we're also thinking about translating the materialities. And I know this is not all of Zoe's point, but thinking also um, about her work outside of a quote unquote black studies, because she's thinking about Africa, make that make sense. Right. And I hope to be clear, that's obviously not a critique of Zoe, right? It's the literal opposite. How is someone working on Namahoro genocide, thinking about Africanity, Africanism and Blackness outside of what we name as Black studies um, and its iterations? That should be untenable and impossible. So then, of course, when we're thinking about the techniques and technologies of Black people and their creative iterations as um uh, Brock is talking to us about being rendered first the, the technique, right? Being first the object and now the agents, but also objectified and oppressed on this global scale and this globally anti-Black world order. These, for me, are parts of the same sort of constitutive foundation of broadly um, disciplining conceits. And so this is where I think Black studies can offer a kind of rupture um, and can speak a little bit to it, right? Because Black studies, as the critique of Western civilization, was then, in a way, always, always already, if I have to say it that way, but it was always an anti-discipline. Right. So we need to then also have a conversation while we're thinking about the capital T, lowercase t of tech and what black studies has to say to it or whether black studies in this conversation, whether the anti-discipline. Right. And this is also the disciplining of black studies and how that sort of is coming in and lockstep, I think, with the disciplining of black people, black knowledge formation, black language, black vernaculars and so on. Um, I hope that's you know making sense. I was trying to you know tease together all of these different ribbons, but we really, I think, need. And when I say we because I you know want to put the money where the mouth is and try to always name which we I'm talking about as that also is translated and shifts. I also mean the we that are forged or working, living or of in some broad context, Turtle Island, specifically the United States. That we needs to really name and think about um, these other sort of fomented sort of collectives of possibility, but also of history, of language, of uh, sort of genealogical knowledge formations that will actually allow us then right, to take up technology, because Zoe's point is also under advisement in terms of the materiality, right? But those cords and cables are not under Turtle Island, right? They're all over the place. So where is Black studies on environment? Where is Black studies on, right, thinking climate catastrophe in these sorts of ways? And of course, we have dope scholars like Badora Allegra and many other people who have been trying to, to Sylvia Winter, um, think about these kinds of questions but now we then get to the point of why aren't we reading them, right? And not as an indictment, because right, we're under this weary, where is some sort of era, and I can barely remember a thought from 10 minutes ago, so I don't know about all of y'all, but I really do mean to sort of put it on the table is not yet, yeah, not an indictment, but something, you know, let's we ask ourselves, right? What's getting in the way of me being able to read and attend to these things? What um, about this discipline that Black studies never intended to be is pushing me away from having this conversation and picking up this logic or picking up this like nature, um, this treatise on nature and, and climate catastrophe that's sort of not quote unquote in my field if the field is ambientally and ecologically everything. And I'm using ecologically in the way that Toni Morrison did um, in Playing in the Dark as well. Deja, I know we got questions. I know we got questions on deck, but can I respond to that briefly? Go ahead, go ahead. I swear to be brief, like 100,000 words or less. Um, so 
one of the things that I think is being brought up powerfully with the conversation of who are we reading, right, is, uh, and going back to, to Kelly's, as you mentioned, uh, essay, like Kelly is just one person. Um, but who is Black Studies reading with respect to technology? So Zoe's comments, I'm sorry, Dr. Zoe's comments about not seeing herself as Black Studies, I don't really see myself as Black Studies either. So you can imagine my surprise when I won an award for a work in African-American popular culture. I'm like, well, how did that happen? Right. Um, and so I have long persisted in my own belief that I am external to Black studies because of my focus on digital technologies, right? And I say this in part, and I make similar complaints about Afrofuturism, right? Because I feel like Black studies is overly concerned with the archive and with the artist, right? The technologies come into play sometimes. I'm thinking of like Venus Green's fantastic work on Black women operators for the Bell Company uh, in New York, right? There are offshoots here and there where Black Studies does pay attention to technology, Rayvon Fouché's work uh, and others, right? But for the most part, Black Studies prefers to stand in the archive. And from the archive, they excavate the traces that they can find in the archive of who and what we were, right? And that does not lend itself to looking forward, right? And I think the digital, even if it is a remediation of pre previous technologies, almost encourages, maybe even insists that we start to look forward to a different mode of expression where we can actually speak back, right? So I love the work on Black newspapers and Black radio. I think that's closest to what I'm trying to do with talking about the Black digital. But I also see that as uh, a historic yearning and uh, uh, Ahad Lagarde's work on Afro nostalgia, right? A recuperation of of blackness right in an informational way and i see that as traditional i don't see it as radical at all um and so what could we do then to encourage the integration of technology studies into um black studies without making it an additional recuperation how do i avoid seeing uh more uh, monographs about how uh, uh, surveillance is holding us back or search engines are holding us down or or the like. Where do I come to see Kyra Gant's work on twerking in YouTube, right? Where do I go to see Aria Holiday's work on, on young black women, right? Uh, where, do, where do I go to see these things? And how did, how did we get to promote those things as presaging a new way to articulate and understand black studies given this new medium, right? Does that make it radical because it's new? I'm not really sure, but I see it as a different way of understanding blackness that is not tied to previous legacies. It's tied to what we're doing now, the current black mundane, the current black quotidian in ways that I think are really fruitful for this expansive concept of black collectivity and not, not quite black community. So I'll stop there. Um, but you guys, you guys are really making me think, and I don't appreciate that. I'm only on my second cup of coffee, right? <laughs> Thank you, Khadija. No, thank you for that. I have two comments and a question. And while I'm making these comments and asking my question, I really want to encourage the audience to submit questions. Um, please know more about Bitcoin. I was going to shout out one white man whose book I really appreciate, um, David Columbia and the Politics of Bitcoin. He dropped this like, you're going to re-sign the book not that long. And he made it very clear that cryptocurrency is fascism. Like, a whole bunch of years ago. And it's very brief and it's very well, like substantiated, well cited, check it out, read it, David Columbia, check out his work. Um, like 
non-fungible tokens, as we like to refer them. Like, really, all you need to know is that they are a like elaborate pyramid scheme. I know some people feel like it's going to lead to Palestinian liberation. I'm sorry, this is a lie. Check out David Columbia's Politics of Bitcoin. So that was like one comment I wanted to share. Two is that I think, like, I really appreciate your points, Andre. At the same time, I think it's important that we don't over-determine like, the disconnect between Black study and technology as just being endogenous to Black study. Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about is we did an interview on the podcast, um, We Be Imagining podcast, check it out, Apple, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, uh, with Bunny Wong, who had co-developed this platform called Be Trustable with Edward Snowden. And what they were, what I found like really compelling is that I was talking to Bunny and like, this is why like open source hardware spaces are really challenging because it's kind of like Unitarian Universalist. Like I really, I vibe with them, but they're all like white or East Asian. Like there's no black people to be found. But I think the open source hardware space is really important. And so what Be Trustable was about was, can you open up this phone and verify that there is not a microphone installed? Can I trust this hardware in a very like concrete sense? It wasn't about enlightenment. It wasn't about Kant. It was like, can you open this thing and can you verify that what I'm told that this object is, is what this object is. And so that I can trust the conversations that I am having are not being listened to in this way. And so much of these designs, like an Apple phone, the latest Android, are these very minimalist, sleek designs that conceal the hardware within. We see the same thing when we navigate to Google's landing page. You ask the average person, what is Google? They're thinking about G Suite, Google Drive, cloud. People have some idea that cloud is not literal. It's like a metaphor. There's computer sitting somewhere. But the idea that it's like a grounded data center, like that's centralized in different parts of the jerk, you know, like this is very abstract abstract to people. And this is deliberate, right? Like not in the sense that it's a conspiracy, but in the same way, these submarine cables are like removed from public discourse and removed, you know, I don't want to equate sightedness with knowledge, but like, so not just visibility, but removed from the ways that like whatever sense we have to make legible of the world that we're living in. Um, and I think have become such abstractions and that like, it's wild because you bring up Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm thinking that this is part of the height of predictive policing, the continuation of warrantless wiretapping in tandem with the drones targeting like wedding parties in um, Afghanistan, right? But what has been the most effective messaging around tech is black girls who code. Everybody thinks if you want to understand technology, I better learn Python. I better have the best Wi-Fi connection. You know, they're not, you know, we have done you know, I think if I'm going to make a critique and I, you know, I complain a lot about this in Twitter, but I think those who have strong technical training are all too often giving their bad hot takes on Combahee River Collective. When you got like 10, 15 years of technical training, people need to understand we are terrible at science communication. It's not coming through. And that's why people might be mad that Shoshana Zuboff's surveillance capitalism is one of the most often like popular cited materials, but the title is catchy. It, it, it landed with people and we failing. People do not understand it. One of the best articles that was written 
um, Karen Howe and the MIT Technology Review after Dr. Timnit Gebru was fired, resignated from Google, was about what are these actual like large language lang large language models that she was working on and raising a red flag about how Google was like creating ecological destruction, reproducing English as a hegemonic language onto these platforms, which we are, are increasingly relying on as default. So many people wrote me. And they were like so excited because this was the first article where they could actually piece apart what is this thing that we call tech. Um, you know, so I just want to make sure like I can definitely rag on black study, although I do appreciate that people who are of or adjacent to black study do read um, definitely within tech. I don't think that that is the standard. Um, and you guys say like happy, happy. Right. But really people in tech, I mean, like people are reading book jackets out here, y'all. And because it's not incentivized. It's not incentivized at all. You know, there is an emphasis more on like quantitative studies, you know, regurgitating social justice platitudes. Um, there is not. And, you know, I don't want to over romanticize being outside of the academy, but as like a non-academic academic, I do like consider myself a scholar, but I haven't gone through like the terrorizing and hazing that um, many of you have gone in order to achieve your position. And like sometimes I do think about becoming a grad student because y'all get health insurance and stuff. But then I see the lack of labor protections and I'm just like, this is not um, a compelling argument. Um, and so but I don't both want to not uh, romanticize being in the academy or being without, because what is inside of the academy are these resources and autonomy to kind of do some synthesis around these fissures within both of these fields or even the conception of the fields. Um, oh, sorry, I'm looking at, uh, so Andre, did you want to ask, oh, Zoe, you wanted to ask something? I was saying, let's take a question from the Q and A. <laughs> Um, John, did you send the additional questions? My, my Skype is freezing here. Okay. Okay, great. So there's a question from Jess. How do we deal with account for the irony of having this conversation in the virtual commodifying space? Are we ourselves here? Are we our images? We'll come in with the matrix. I just want to be annoying real quick and 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 be a little postmodernist and say that we are not ourselves anywhere because we are a multiplicity of selves that are kind of re-enfleshed depending on the spaces in which we're situated. So I am not myself in the academy. I am I both am and am not myself in the academy. I both am and am not myself with my parents. I both am and am not myself when I go back to Zimbabwe. So I don't think that the fact that we are in this virtual commodifying space, like the material space is also a virtual commodifying space. I think what I do appreciate about Zoom and about what the pandemic has forced us to do in terms of creating more virtual spaces is that there is, um, it has laid bare the kind of lie um, of, of um, the lies around accessibilities that people have been demanding. Um, and I think it, it permits, although there are still kind of class and geographic restraints around this, I think it kind of permits an expansion of conversation and participation. Again, not to pretend that technology is like democratizing the world or that the internet is democratic because it's not as we, the United States is also supposed to be democratic, but it's not. Um, but I do think that it does permit a kind of, um, an additional level of participation. Um, and I do want 
to kind of say that I don't necessarily think that I'm any more surveilled or or I'm I'm policing myself any more in the things that I am saying aloud on the internet than what I would say within academia. Um, I think that, yeah, the, it's, it's a commodification that is not, that is not unique. I think. I would, I would have said something, but Zoe said it already. So yeah, pretty much. Uh, the other part is um, it's not some, the virtual as a belief about the digital is really the same virtual that you have uh, when you're on a phone conversation with somebody. Like, where are you when you're on the phone? Well, you're in your house, you're in your car, but you're also in this space in between your house your and your person, right? It's a virtual space, right? So what we're seeing here in uh, Zoom, Skype, Blue Jeans, whatever, right, is a visual virtual, right? But in many senses, it's not different. Um, the one thing I would add, though, is that I agree with Zoom and other spaces, virtual conferencing spaces, giving the lie to accessibility. But I will also say that it has also stripped much of the collegiality and um, uh, the things that we rely upon when we share spaces, whether it's face to face reading, reading of the interface, right, to uh, to try to gauge where another person is coming from or what they're saying or the physical sound of my fan when I snap it open, when I hear one of my co-panelists say something dope, like you can hear that shit if I didn't have the mic on, if we were in a shared space, right? And so we lose some bandwidth, right? And I think in some ways that is a terrible thing to lose, right? Uh, and so I do my best to be live on screen, right? Uh, in part to animate these proceedings, but at the same time, I understand that this is kind of where we're heading in terms of, um, building virtual communities. This is our metaverse right here, right now, right? And so we need to begin to understand what we can bring to this as an excess of life to make these spaces more livable for all of us. Damn, I thought I didn't have nothing to say, my bad. Um, I double don't have nothing to say, but let me speak for 25 minutes. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but just real quick, um, I want to actually bring in something that Khadija said, um, a minute ago, um, Khadija talked about complaint, right? One of the first things they said was, I love to complain. And I want to say that while we're figuring out what the Black Collective holds, um, I do think complaint is a significant part of that and, and on like many, many levels, because if you know Black people, we love to complain. But also on an ontological level, just to bring it to like some semiotic on a semiotic tip, right? There's also um, what complaint means, which is not just um, sort of an accusation, which is one of its definitions, like in a lexical sense. It also is, we're, we're talking about the algic, right? Like in terms of pain, right? We're talking about what hurts. And so in a way, um, Khadija's call, um, Khadija's remarks, but also um, the very conversation we're having about, you know, Black studies and, and tech and technology, capital and lowercase t, is also a complaint. And that for me is like an X marks the spot of what has gone wrong and what 
where can we go from here? So I just, I mean, that's not necessarily the topic at hand, but for me, it sort of is woven in to um, um, what the, the question asker was talking about as the irony. And then Zoe laid down the gauntlet and let us know that it was more like ironic and in a lot of more set sense rather than a rhetorical sense, right? It's actually not ironic, don't you think? It's more, right, the, the conversation that we're having. I hope y'all can see these fans. I just, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. Um, and I just wanted to sort of like bring that in, right? That actually um, also in Zoe's remarks, thinking about, you know, I mean, I've just never heard somebody say, and we can play it back because she did say it, what I like about Zoom. And I was just like, couldn't be me. And then of course you sort of like tease it out in this really brilliant way. And I was like, oh yeah, obviously here's what it makes possible. I mean, I'm thinking just personally about the last couple of years of um, abolitionist organizing, um, specifically with cops off campus across Turtle Island, across various um, sites of education, among the borders between the university and the towns that they occupy and the lands that they occupy. Um, that complaint was also made a vehicle of possibility through the digital medium and is also something um, that we need to sort of hold dear and, and relish. Um, but when we're thinking about complaint, and this is I'm, I'm like my, my thought experiment is go, I don't want it to get too off the rails, but thinking about complaint in terms of, you know, what hurts and what needs to be done about it and sort of having that be the first thing. You got to say something hurts and where before you can like really figure out um, how to how to heal that. Right. That the extractive force of the digital is also something that um I wonder if we can talk about. So I realize this is not just a comment, but actually a question in terms of the extractive feelings, right? I can give talks and I appreciate Andre talking to us about like being live. And I realize that I've also trained myself towards that too, to be like over expressive so that we can feel a little bit um, physically closer and thinking about what that means. But I do a talk on Zoom, like an actual like lecture or a keynote, and I'm more tired than I've ever been. Right. Um, one hour on Zoom feels like four hours in a physical sense, even though, as we're all pointing out, we're still in a physical sense. Right? We're still bodies in space in relation to each other. But what do we think about, you know, the extractive force of the digital, something that black studies can, can, can also talk about as it thinks a lot about extraction, but also social media folks, technology people can also think about in terms of extraction on the other end, even though they're trying to recoup it. And I want to I'm thinking here about like the social media outrage machine, right? Where they just like drop some partial info and like black Twitter or these other sites like go towards it and then circulate and then everyone's mad and then there's think pieces and then there are think pieces on the think pieces. Then there's an article from some academic who was like, here's the conversation and debate and here's what I think, which is not what I think actually at all, but rather me regurgitating knowledge. I didn't even need to be here, but here's a publication. You see what I'm saying? Like, is there a way that we can actually, um, this is what I meant at the very start, slow it down. I say, as ironically, I speak faster than ever. Is there a way that we can take our time, deepen our consciousness in the digital, but also as linked to this embodied space? Because the polemic of extraction is real, and that is going to happen with and also without us as it happens to us. So that's sort of a question I have in this whole mix. 
Thank you. I do want to just lift up that it's like 2.25 Eastern Standard Time. So like technically we got like five minutes. So I just want to make one comment and then raise a, a question that came in the chat. Um, and one comment, I cannot remember the author of the paper. I'll look it up afterwards. But there was a paper that came about one year into the plague um, about Zoom fatigue. And part of it, what it was talking about was that, you know, in a in, in IRL, I would never be this close to your face unless we're lovers, we're siblings, we're like, we have that level of intimacy. And the affordances of Zoom, it brings you so cl close that it's forcing you into a level of intimacy through which you really don't have any consent. I mean, you could be like 12 feet away from your computer, but you know, that's not the way that it's built to be default. And so even thinking through these questions, like we need the discipline doesn't work. Like we need black study. We need to be thinking about like environmental exchange. We need to be thinking about information science, about computer science, about affordances, open source hardware. And this brings me to a question from Larissa Anderson in the chat, who says, as a doc student in a media department, I would love y'all's wisdom in navigating a, th a thorough interdisciplinary study without inviting excessive disciplinary violence through double degrees. Um, and, you know, maybe Zoe, would you like to begin and weigh in on that? Or somebody else could jump in. That's not, you know. What What do we mean by double degrees? Like people who have too many of them? Like I talking about they, PhD? I think, I think that they mean that they want to study. How do you do interdisciplinary study without being like, say, a double major? Where now you have to take two full oh, courses. Okay, 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 okay. I got it. I got it. Um, I just, so to your to your thing, I think... The, the difficulties of, of trying to like, I didn't, I didn't mean to say that like zoom is great because I hate zoom, but I also appreciate being able to talk to a lot more people than I would ordinarily be able to, if it was in person, but also, you know, to your point, Khadija about the, the study, you know, I think as much as we're embracing these new technologies, I think that I'm a Luddite, I think. And I think that we because of the way that technology opens us up to so much more information and we are adjusting, like our bodies were not evolutionarily equipped to stare at a screen for this long, to sit at 90 degrees for this long, uh, to be in this particular kind of proximity for an entire workday. And so I think that what's going to be interesting, I think as a kind of interdisciplinary consideration is this kind of squaring between the neuropsychological and the kind of like emotional affective in, in how we are creating and articulating our, our various selves within this kind of container. Um, but I think as far as like, you don't have to, you don't have to, 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 to take two sets of, or multiple sets of course loads to do interdisciplinary work. If you just ask more methodical and more kind of capacious questions. So it's like, I study, or my PhD is in sociology. I study like the history of whatever. And it also is about the kind of aesthetic and museological politics of skulls in archives. It's also about genomics of indigenous communities in Southern Africa and how their identities are bounded by the state. I think that you ju just, what I have learned from graduate school in the various ways that I was being disciplined um, by my advisor is to just kind of trust your own curiosity um, because what the purpose of being in a discipline is, is to, it's not a metaphor. It is to literally discipline your thoughts, to teach you how to engage in specific sets of methodologies, to answer 
certain kinds of discipline relevant questions. And, but I think that what's important is to like really trust yourself and the kind of, I mean, ungovernability of, of how we think um, and, and to kind of follow that instinct. I'm just here to take a methods class from Dr. Sumudzi. That's all I have to say. No, That's I just not want- fair. You got to say more than that. Um, listen, all of my- Ain't no half on studies departments in the in Europe, remember? So how, how do we get a U? Oh, well, first of oh, can we, let me not. Um, first of all, Andre, that is a really good point. And that is a problem that I was speaking to earlier, where overwhelmingly, if people want to do the work of Black studies, they come from one Babylon in Europe to the Babylon that is the United States. And that disciplines people's knowledge and puts it into a relation with an ethno-nationalist, cultural imperialist, settler-colonial project that actually serves to territorialize, nationalize, and diminish the capacity for Black study and Black thought, which is, again, why someone like Dr. Samudzi, who's doing work on the continent, is somehow uh, etiologically outside of Black studies, right? So we all are impoverished from this. Um, and that's why I have a PhD in history of consciousness and degrees and other things from other places, because I had to do what the, I forgot the name of the person asking the question, but I got degrees in different things, from semiotics to literature to history of consciousness, doing historiography and feminist study. And I had to do all of these different things. And I'm not and this is not a complaint or a lament about that sort of journey, except the way that people treat graduate students and the sort of, right, <laughs> that, that other sort of capitalist concern that really also shapes knowledge formation. Um, I'm grateful for all of those things. I needed my degree in Russian to think the questions that I'm thinking about Black life and thought. I needed to think feminist theory to think about the geographies of Italy and how those things are gendered and racialized. I need to think semiotics so that I know when I heard the read podcast a couple years ago when Chris said words mean things. I was like, I spent four years studying semiotics and homegirl just said it just like that, right? I needed all these things to go together. But I, every, again, I wasn't being facetious. Everything that Zoya was saying is, I think, spot on. I also don't want to, um, <laughs> I also don't want to, um, I'd be remiss because you said the the asker said that they were a graduate student. I know there might be other graduate students listening now or listening back. Um, Let's also remember that question in conversation with the departmentalization and institutionalization of black studies, because whenever y'all go out onto the market, let's just be very clear that people are going to ask for interdisciplinary um, work but they don't want interdisciplinary, right? They want, if you're a historian, they want history plus. They want you to skim literature or anthropology. They don't want you to take seriously Zoe's provocation that you think history and historical methods, you think what is underpinning the disciplinary formation of what we now can call history and understand that it wasn't always history, what you're learning as history in a history PhD, and to do the same thing with anthropology and or the same thing with literature or computer science or what have you, 
they want you to keep cute in your history box, be disciplined, but like read some stuff that you can toss on a syllabus so that people can say that they're diversifying or worse, decolonizing their curricula, right? And I also want to make sure that we're very clear that that word needs something as well. Decolonization, I know this is not necessarily conversation, but because we're at time, I want to make sure that I don't get away without saying that decolonization is violent. It doesn't look like you tossing a book on top of a syllabus. It doesn't look like more brown faces in your um, feminism 101 class or your history 202, right? It actually looks like a radical, by which Andre I mean rooted, not new or novel, but rooted sense, articulated sense of transformed change. And sometimes it involves machetes, right? Not a syllabus. And so you need to be very clear what it means when you say you are doing the work. And to do that as a graduate student in the disciplinary white supremacist construction that is the Western Academy already takes a toll. And I want to acknowledge and honor this, but you also then have to do the work internally and collectively in whatever you articulate community to be to make sure that you are also aware of, of who the we is and what I think Christina Sharp has talked to about as we work, right? Name what it is that you're doing and why so that when the discipline, you know, like rattles its saber, you're also ready. And then we know, right? that if we stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And so I think that's also just another thing that Black study can offer in terms of preparedness, not for what is on my reading list and what do I have to dig in. Reading is not just like what's in the book or what's on the screen and let's turn the page, metaphorically or literally, but also sitting in epistemological relation with a body or a framing of knowledge that is outside of your own and touching that thing, but also honoring your own commitments and making sure that that is rock solid. And for me, that is already necessarily interdisciplinary work because in order to honor my commitments, again, especially acknowledging as something like CLR James saying it's you know the critique of Western civilization, I need un to understand historiographical methods. I need to do close reading from literary methods. I need to think Zora Neale Hurston's version of anthropology when I think about ethnographic methods and their ethics, right? So it's not just one plus one and two and do I need a double degree? I could, the academy doesn't have the range, sis or sib or fam or whoever asked that question, right? So you need to have the range and be prepared to sort of arm yourself, and I mean this literally and metaphorically, just in case the feds are watching. Um, don't forget I'm a poet, so definitely metaphorically high feds. Arm yourself with the appropriate tools that you need to do the transformation and do your own work. And this is because Andre made me say more, but thanks. Only if you let me. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Andre. I want to be mindful. I know that Haymarket doesn't operate on CP time. So, I mean, you know, like make a comment. I'm going to go and then we could we could wrap up. OK, uh, real quick for uh, those who are familiar with historically black colleges and universities, uh, the Ph.D., uh, much more so than the master's, is a pledging process. Right. They will haze you into being the person that they want you to be, as essay has so poetically said. Right. Uh, that being said, uh, going back to uh, Zoe's uh, comment about not really being felt as black studies or not feeling like she is black studies. Uh, I am an autodidact. Right. I, I couldn't I did not take those courses. Uh, when I was in undergrad or in grad school, none of the, the seven or eight years of schooling that I had, right? I did the reading, 
right? But not only do I do the reading, I came across some philosophers of race who I've found really helpful. One of them is Robert Gooding, Gooding Williams. And he says something that really caught my attention about blackness. He said, blackness is intentionality, right? Or as Paul Mooney says, everybody wants to be a, until it's time to be a, should I fill in the words? No, I'm gonna leave it there, right? <laughs> right? And being one, be, wanting to be part of this community means that you take on aspects of that community which may not be popular or comfortable or even sometimes familiar, right? And you do it in the sense that you are contributing to a collectivity, right? Uh, not a community necessarily, but a collectivity, right? You are part of this project, right? And so to answer your question about epistemic violence, there will always be epistemic violence. As, as I said, again, so well, you can be interdisciplinary until it's time for tenure, right? Then all of a sudden they got words for you, right? They'll be like, well, you know, uh, but what do you do that's history? What do you do that's information science? When I first went on the market with this, um, with this um, dissertation about Black African-Americans online following Hurricane Katrina, when I first went on the market to apply to information schools, I was told my research was orthogonal to information science. <laughs> I had to go look it up. I'm like, I have a vocabulary and I don't know what that word means. Basically, I'm at right angles and I'm still kind of at right angles, right? But what I do, I feel at this point in my career is essential to an expansive understanding of what blackness is and can be, right? And I see that in the work of everybody on the screen, right? And so for the, the young one who asked that question, like it's always gonna be hard, right? Um, and it's not always gonna be fun, but there is a reason why you do this, if not for self, if for collective. And I'm not saying sacrifice yourself, but I, I am saying self-care and not in the mindfulness sense, but find ways to recuperate. But this is a worthy project, um, right? And it's something that I, I feel that if you're asking these questions, you're already poised to contribute to the project of Blackness uh, in ways that are essential and invaluable. And I look forward to whatever your contributions will be. Thank you. I'm just, you know, like I said, Haymarket doesn't operate on CP time and we like nine minutes over the time. So I'm just going to make a quick comment and then we're going to close. And I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, the comment that I wanted to make is like back to the question of black community. A lot of times what what happens when we don't disaggregate this is I feel like class is even insufficient, but like what people you often use as a metric as a relationship to their blackness which is its own kind of pathology is like whether or not the police would recognize you as black right and the police generally are not like gunning down black studies students on the Princeton campus. Like that is not the intensity of state violence that I'm seeing when I'm working with families going through path like the homeless shelter in New York City, right? You know, like 90% of uh, shootings in New York City happen with 150 feet of the housing projects. Like this is not the same things as, as the epistemic violence that people are experiencing, you know, on the Columbia University campus. And not, not that these are mutually exclusive, right? Like through the continuum of our lives, we may have been at like, one or the receiving end of another, right? But I do want to bring that up because I think a lot of times a critique of the academy is made in such a way that like the experience of poor and marginalized people is seen as anachronistic to like academic scholarship. And that's never been my experience. When I was in sitting in the welfare office, you know, they have you sitting there forever. It's like a full-time job to apply for welfare. Like 
I was reading W.E.B. Du Bois. Like, and I was having conversations with people in the waiting room around that. And that's not to romanticize being poor, too. The shit was difficult, you know, hauling up library books and the groceries from Whole Foods up the shelter steps. Like, I'm not trying to romanticize that. But I do want to bring up, you know, I know in our conversation essay, we discuss a little bit of Virginia Eubanks book, Automating Inequality. And in one chapter, she mentions how uh, middle class people live in the surveillance past, Black, poor, and otherwise marginalized people, particularly people who are, say, like in refugee camps, are experiencing coordinated housing entry at Skid Row, are in the surveillance future. And so we need to really not just abstractly conceive of the chasms and the experiences, depending on where we may sit within or without the university, whether we're being we're whether we're being offered a tenure track position in Columbia or being displaced as Columbia forces people out since the number one thing that Columbia and NYU are as a real estate market. Right. Um, but there is, you know, uh, a way that we can work hand in hand. And I just want to center like, you know, really the people are on the receiving end of poverty because not everybody is an academic. And so when we say this, we, I want to make sure that's capacious enough that it can acknowledge like how both you and S- uh, you, Zoe and Essay said, like, you know, a majority of descendants of African people don't even speak English and then they speak more languages than everybody else, right? Like this, we has to be disaggregated. And with that, I just want to say thank you so much to Haymarket. Thank you to Logic Magazine for letting me hijack your shit. Like there is no Black Tech Magazine and really their like willingness to let me take it over like really meant a lot to me and I hope that we can continue um, this conversation like tag us on Twitter like hit me up or tag you on Twitter hit me up um, thank you y'all thanks for listening if you like this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org 